0: Hey guys, it's Helen Molesworth here. I'm excited to let you know that I'm going to be your host for the next season of Dialogues. But before we drop those episodes in the winter, we've got a little something else on tap. I'm going to be calling dear friends and seeing what is top of mind in their studios or their work, in the art world, in art history, and in the culture at large. I'm starting with my old friend Steve Locke a painter, a teacher, and someone whose opinions always get my juices flowing. We'll be dropping these hot takes on what's going on every other week or so, and I really hope you enjoy them. Hey, Steve Locke.
1: Hey, Helen Molesworth. How are you, dear?
0: I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there.
1: It's nice to talk to you.
0: It's always nice to talk to you. I wanted to talk to you about the third rail of current conversations about culture, I'd like to talk to you about appropriation.
1: Oh, girl. I know. Let me get some coffee, honey. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
0: So, you know, I wanted to start by just saying that I really feel myself as a generational subject. I was trained uh, in art history by Rosalind Krauss and Hal Foster. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And Rosalind Krauss for me was the lodestar in graduate school. She seemed like the LeBron James of art history, like she could do it all. Right. Um, you know, she could do Picasso, she could do Richard Serra, she could do the whole 20th century, she could do theory, she could do formal description. You know, she really was an, just such an extraordinary mind, and she had a huge impact on me. And I remembered in graduate school, her telling a story about the founding of October magazine. Oh yeah. And how on principle they decided that they would never request a copyright permission for images that they were using, that they did not go to ARS for instance, but that they were, they weren't going to engage in that, that once a picture, once an image was in this stream of reproducibility, and this is, of course, pre-internet. This is just the photograph. Right. But it was open. It was an open territory, and that to fetishize the maker or the copyright that around that was basically to create a condition of scarcity where none existed, and that this was okay. a kind of principled political position around the reproduction of images. Mm-hmm. And you know, she probably said that I was probably twenty-one or twenty-two years old when I heard that. So it, you know, I'm aware that certain things have lodged in my brain as right and true because they came in at a certain time in my life, and I was very malleable, and I was in the process of learning and being formed. But that mm-hmm. really did influence my sense of what in what it meant for an image to have a public life, right? Uh, And so recently I read an article in the New York Times about a kind of little bit of a dust up between the artist Adam Pendleton and the fashion house Alexander McQueen, where Pendleton feels that McQueen has stolen, appropriated, borrowed, lifted, not given due credit to Adam Pendleton's sort of black and white uh, graffiti-esque pictogram form of mark making. Right. And I don't want to drag Adam Pendleton, who I think is a very interesting artist. And I thought the thing at Momo was actually like very few people have handled the volume of that space as successfully. That's true. Do you know that what I mean? Really like true. that is a, yeah. that is an extraordinary space. And he really knocked it out of the park. So this is not I I'm not interested in any kind of dragging. But I am right. more interested in this question of appropriation. Um, that I confess, I just, I have a generational difference. I, I don't get consternated about it and I'm surprised by all the consternation and I just wanted to put it out there and see what you had to say.
1: You know, I don't struggle with appropriation the way a lot of people in the current generation do. So I'm not as, it's funny, like I've joked with you before that, you know, my, the formative Teacher for me, one of the formative teachers for me in my graduate education was Rob Store because he was my faculty when I was at Skowhegan, and having long conversations with him, and it's sort of like I think of us sometimes as uh, children of divorce, whose parents hate each other. We you know,
0: are, we are <laughs> the really,
1: children of divorce. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Rosalind
0: Krause and Rob Storr really do hate one
1: another. They hate each other with a with a with a, a hatred you and I could never, never access, right? But um it. so much of my thinking is formed by him and um, you know, the Richter show and where that kind of idea where a photograph is just an image. Like there's you can't think of what to paint. And there's like a million photographs around. So why don't you paint those? And photographs bringing a little bit of the reality of the world back into painting, but bringing it in in a a clinical or distant sort of way was a strategy for a lot of us. Uh, For me, in the beginning part of my career, but I'm thinking about like David Sally, um, who got dragged um, ruthlessly by Mira Shore. For the misogyny of his pictures. But be Sally being clear and saying like that they're just images. This notion right. that something was just an image in the sea of all the other images that were coming to us, that is something I have always embraced because I was always kind of in love with photography in that way. But uh, Sontag says that it's the great democratizer. Right. Like everything can be reduced to the camera or by the camera right so appropriation as images as an art world strategy was one thing right I think that what sometimes people confuse is appropriation as an artistic gesture versus stealing culture from other people Mm. and that is kind of um, the loaded part where you're you're you don't want to get canceled or or dragged because you saw something that someone else did and you sort of copied it. Right. And apparently that's bad. Like now you can't do that. That's bad. Right. Right. But there was a time when we really didn't think about that. Like I bought the newspaper. Right. I went to the store and I bought the newspaper. So the newspaper's mine. Right. all Everything that's in the newspaper belongs to me now because I bought the newspaper. Everybody who works for the newspaper got paid for their labor. Like why am I, and I paid for the newspaper right? So I mean, I'm gonna xerox the newspaper and use it in my work because I, I own it, right? With the internet, that has made things a little bit more slippery because there's a whole bunch of stuff that people think that they have witnessed when only their only exposure to it is seeing it online. So, do you really own that image now? Do you what What's your relationship to it? Mm. I think it's a different thing.
0: It's interesting when you when you think about Richter and David Salle. You know, the person who comes to mind for me is Luke Toymans. Um Absolutely. And I always understood Luke's appropriation of images from television and and the newspaper. He wanted to be a history painter. And so the way you got to be a history painter, um, and I think this is true of Richter as well, if you think about the Bader Meinhof group pictures in particular, you know, if you wanted to have that kind of very trenchant relationship to the now, to be putting into the historical stream of painting, a painting of our moment, there wasn't any way to avoid The photograph or appropriated image. I mean, to go out and paint on plein air as a way to avoid appropriating someone else's picture would have been, you know, sort of ridiculous almost. Right. So this quality that that to be a citizen of the world, right, to be a cosmopolitan subject meant that all those pictures were somehow equally available for all of us to be discussing. So I'm kind of curious sometimes about the way appropriation gets very linked to one person's property as opposed to this idea that, or maybe we don't believe in this idea anymore, that there is a kind of collective ownership of the news or of history or of culture, that we all kind of own it together.
1: Well, I think it depends upon the aspect of history. Something that happens to an individual gets memorialized by their family, right? Let's say if I walk out of of my studio and I get hit by a bus and it's a horrible tragedy and everyone's really sad, and then we have a funeral and then, you know, uh, they decide to bury me somewhere and they'll put up a headstone, right? And that's my memorial, right? The cemeteries of this planet are filled with those kinds of memorials. Everybody gets one, right? That's a tragedy that happened to me and maybe my family and loved ones, right? Mm. When we talk about a tragedy that happens to a people or a polis or a demos, right? How do we memorialize that? Who does that belong to? Who did that happen to? Right. Did that happen to a family or did it happen to the nation, right? And those kinds of things get really slippery because people think that um people think that victims are need to be remembered right and um chances are they are remembered by the people who loved them right but the notion that we as a demos have to remember individuals or remember what happened right, right. so going back to toyments right the tragedy of the belgian occupation of the Congo, right that happened to a people and it was acted out on the bodies of particularly black people in in that in that cycle of paintings right uh, Sh- to Shumbe and Lumumba whom he painted so beautifully right mm-hmm. beautiful aggressive sort of um direct painting uh denying us the pleasure of the paint in service of fixing the image in mm-hmm. Toymans' practice. So we have all those paintings painted by a Belgian, right? Who has quote unquote some responsibility, sort of exercising some responsibility about what happened, right? Now, did uh Luke Toymans call um Lumumba's family to get permission? Right. Did he check out with the Belgian government to make sure it was okay? Like, no. No, that happened to a polis. That happened to a demos. That happened to a people. And right. if it happened to a people, then I feel like it's um it's up for grabs, right? You know, and I I don't think and things that end up in the newspaper, Helen, or end up as a public thing that we're supposed to be um all concerned about that happened to all of us. There's this notion that that not not to talk about myself, but you know, this idea that uh uh BB Moore Campbell the writer from the 70s. She -hmm. wrote this book called Your Blues Ain't Like Mine, right? Right. Which is this notion that like, oh, you think this doesn't have anything to do with you. You're seeing like black kids get murdered by the cops and you think that doesn't have anything to do with you. And, you know, we have to understand that we are all each other's concern. Right. Right. If we don't, then we're all lost.
0: I mean, I wonder then, how do we hold Adam Pendleton's uh upsetness with McQueen in tandem with something like Arthur Jaffa's Love is the message? I mean, to speak of like something that happened to a people and that something and that the ramifications of it happening to a people involve all of us. I mean, love is the message is, you know. It's many many things but one of the things it is is one of it's 7 minutes of brilliant appropriation. Right, but you no know, one every, talks
1: about no one talks about that film as appropriation.
0: Right, every single image is right. lifted, grafted, borrowed, copied. And mm-hmm. and AJ clearly knows that. I mean, one of the things that's so brilliant about it is all those Getty water stamps on Yeah. On yeah. the images, right? The the idea that he's made it really clear. Oh, I'm totally lifting this. Right. You know and you don't and own way, it. All right. I don't own any of this, and yet I own all of all it. All of it. Right. So I guess I'm just curious why. I mean, do you think it's because AJ left so many crumbs that he had been lifting things? Is that the footnoting? Is that is is he being citational? And what Adam Pendleton is upset about is that McQueen is not being citational
1: well you know I, I this idea that something could be in the zeitgeist that maybe maybe graffiti was in the zeitgeist I don't know with how much there's a a suspicion of theft, which is the thing that I find very interesting there's a there's a it's it's based in suspicion right and it's not sort of you know give people the benefit of the doubt maybe maybe it just happened i don't know maybe we could have a conversation about it outside of the new york times right right um i'm gonna get in trouble for saying this right but i don't think that i have a a better understanding of arthur jaffa's work because i'm black Mm. i don't think that there's some sort of essential black aesthetic I know that a lot of people believe in that right now, but mm-hmm. I've never believed that I, I you have culture in this country because you have black people like there's nothing in this country culturally that black people have not touched. So this idea that somehow this is uh, this incredible inscrutable black gesture that only black people can understand has always seemed like nonsense to me. It really has. It's mm-hmm. a way of treating Black people like they're not human. It's a way of treating us like we're from another planet and we need to be dissected and studied and that sort of stuff. So I think anybody with eyes can figure out what Arthur Jaffa is talking about in that film. And the problem why we don't talk about it as appropriation is because people assume that because Arthur Jaffa is a certain kind of person, that that work is directly about him. Because it's about black people and it's about him, and he's black, and he's telling the museum world about black culture. Love is the message, and the message is death. Is about you. It's not about Arthur Jaffe. It's about you, right? And so, if it's about you, how are you implicated in those images? But this idea that somehow it's um, it's black, so it's authentic, right? Right. It's not appropriated. It's authentic because it's. It's Arthur's real experience. And I don't know if any of that shit is true. I think right. that shit gets gets grafted onto black people like um some sort of weird minstrel show. Mm. Like perf- perform your black life for us, Negro. Perform it for us. Help us understand your black pain. And like that's always been a kind of um a kind of gutter insult to me. That is mm-hmm. if my life was somehow black and inscrutable and it's not right it's really not yeah
0: so interesting to me the twinning or the hold not twinning the holding together of um this new critique of appropriation rather than seeing Mm -hmm. it as a method right Right. as a as a as a method that is deep in art history because again to name check rosalind krauss right it's Rosalind who writes, you know, the myth of the originality and the myth of the avant-garde, right? That in fact, we've been copying and appropriating that this is part of how art works in the West. Um, And that, to your point, um, you know, Black people in America are absolutely in the West, of the Western tradition. Like, there's no outside, there's no outside of the Western tradition if you are born and raised in this country and you've come from you know generations
1: yeah it's my tradition of folks right who 300 been years of black people and like this whole idea of like you know as if american music isn't um steeped in minstrelsy right the enjoyment of black field songs by white and black people so that is part and parcel of who we are as a people right and so like i look at the pendleton mcqueen thing And I think fashion has always been looking at what was called the avant-garde. There's always been this dialogue between fashion and art. But I I don't Helen, I look at shit all the time. I look at the colors of the Dairy Queen logo and think, ooh, I need to mix that color when I get back to my studio. Like I... I think of that shit all the time and like this whole notion that somehow everyone is good or right or clear or immediately footnoted or properly notated i don't know if i don't know if we live like that i don't know if that's something that artists do i don't think anyone does that yeah
0: i agree and particularly that we would discuss graffiti particularly in this way or a black and white um cuneiform artistic language, which it seems to me you could talk about Glenn Ligon, you could talk about Xaviera Simmons, you could talk about Basquiat, you could talk about um, you could talk about
1: Stevens you could talk about Steven Sprouse. You could talk about Vivian westwood Stephen
0: Sprouse and Vivian Westwood. Exactly like that if the minute you even touch something called graffiti, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. you are in a slipstream of culture that is incredibly deep. And so one of the things I'm curious about is how and i think this is um just circling back to something you said before like how do we live now in this period where appropriation is like a bad thing and it gets called out right away Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: authenticity is now being offered as this thing which is what i hear in your saying About like that you don't need to be black to understand love is the message or that you don't have us even maybe if I hear you correctly, any kind of special purchase on understanding love is the message because those images are in fact about all of us. Like just because white people are not imaged in love is the message does not mean we are not in fact the structuring absence absolutely that piece
1: you know i i struggle with this myself because i have often refused to participate in conversations that talk about uh blackness in this way because i don't think blackness is something that cannot be understood right so when we talk about it, when we talk about art, when we talk about artists and we talk, we get a black artist talking about other black artists. It seems that one artist is called to be the interlocutor for the other. Right. And like, I, I I just refuse to do that. I think that, you know, if you want to know what um, Arthur Jaffa's work is about, open your fucking heart, open it. Mm -hmm. He's telling you what it's about. He's telling you, you know, it's like Zavira, uh, says you know like i've i've told you what to do i've given you the advice what i need now is for you to take it you just need to take it right and i like i said i don't think this is easy i think it's very hard i think that um appropriation in this current moment is on the downswing or is sort of interpreted poorly because it seems to be theft or something in um inauthentic like you were saying and um the historian eric lott um wrote this wonderful book called love and theft about american blackface minstrelsy and how like you the 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 work is so good that you have to steal it because it's it's driving culture forward it's driving culture forward right so minstrelsy and all the sort of horrible stuff that made it possible The tragedy of Black American life created an art form, created multiple art forms over and over again, right? This idea that somehow Black people cannot approach culture with irony or with distance or with contempt, like everything is some sort of authentic personal reflection of our own Black lives put on display for a white consumer. I've never been remotely interested in that. So when people say, like, how come we're not represented in Hollywood? Uh, my question is, why the fuck would you want to be represented by Hollywood? Look at what ho- look at the way Hollywood represents people. Why the fuck would you want that? There's a whole continent called Africa with filmmakers all over the fucking place. Like Malik Sidibe. There's like all these mm-hmm. people that have represented black people in this sort of um, different way that isn't focused on a white gaze. Like, maybe you could right. pay attention to that. Instead of demanding that Hollywood love you, Hollywood is never going to love you. Lena Horne told you that those people are never going to love you. Why? Why are you so desperate for their love? You know, so I've never. um, When it comes down to appropriation, performing authenticity is the bigger crime to me.
0: Mm, Appropriation. appropriation.
1: Appropriation is just a strategy.
0: And I also, though, I I mean, I kind of know that part of the problem around appropriation is that it immediately seems to open up into a power dynamic conversation. Like who has more power and who stands to profit and or gain in some way from the appropriated image? And so it's curious to me that we, we don't talk about Love is the message as in a, we don't we don't drag it for its clearly appropriated imagery, but right. we do drag other folks for their appropriated imagery. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is. um, This relationship to power, because one of the things I and maybe this is where I will get in trouble in the conversation, one of the things I I don't like about dragging appropriated imagery or dragging the idea of appropriation as inherently bad, is that it plays with another power move, which is I made this and I am entitled to control the thing I made right. forever. forever. and This mm-hmm. I don't kind of. I guess I'm back to Rosalind Krauss in October. Like I think once you make something and put it into the world you actually don't have the power you don't, you are no you may not be entitled to everything you think you're entitled to there whether it's credit remun- remuneration um authenticity mm-hmm. right the the gesture of production and then letting go of distribution of letting it go out into the world that that's a form of loss it's a you know whether you have sold it whether you've given it as a gift you have lost some of your control power authority over that thing
1: i think that's the that's the game that we're playing that's the world that we live in like if i wanted to maintain control over my work it would never leave my studio like and that's not art that's like right. some sort of weird kind of therapy or or something. I don't know what that is, but like, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in being in a bigger conversation. Right. And part of being in a bigger conversation means to be understood, to be misunderstood, to be quoted, to be misquoted, like whatever, like all of that stuff is part of the job. And I think that, you know, this is the hard thing. Black people and women, I'm going to be clear, have been have had their uh, have had their ideas um recontextualized by other people for profit i think that that's a big part of this conversation that has happened culturally that has happened right i'm not saying that um people shouldn't get paid for their work absolutely people should get paid that's that's not an issue that's not the discussion we're having what we're talking about is the way images like a virus affect other people things we can't there's no sort of autotelic subject helen that's sitting in a room coming up with something that no one has ever seen before like really you really think that's going to happen in a globalized world with all sorts of images all the you're going to create something completely new
0: okay good luck with that And also it's interesting to me to sort of try to link it back a little bit to this question of authenticity, that if you made something new that it would be authentic and if you appropriated, it it is not. And I'm, I'm curious about how that not um, as you're pointing to also gets racialized. So that right. There's a way in which I think there's a kind of now white deference to black makers oh like well right. you you say what that's about right. i'm not going to say anything it's a kind of passivity right and it's a kind of abdication i think well, helen of it's,
1: imp- cont- it's contempt it's contempt because it's your work is so personal and so involved with your identity that it cannot be criticized
0: because it is so authentic
1: right because it's if i criticize your work I'm criticizing you and your experience, right? right? And like, you know, I'll put my work up against anybody's because my work comes from a place that is ready to, to enter a critical dialogue. You know, if people want to talk to me about um, my black life, right? As if it's somehow alien or exotic or bizarre in 2022, that's about them. Right. That's not about my work, right? And I think that a lot of people, because they re- they think that um, somehow authentic work by people of color, and in particular by Black people, is somehow immune from any sort of artistic criticism. I don't care if it's by a Black person. It, it, it better be, good. it's like Jesse Jackson said, I'd love to see a Black pilot, but he better be able to fly this plane.
0: <laughs> okay, but wait, I want I to wanted just, I am, I, before we totally trash like the idea of authenticity, because there is that I've been known to use that word on, from time to time to describe something that feels to me, um, that it comes from a, like, I, like all of a sudden the words in my mind feel weak, that it comes from a real place, that it comes from a heartfelt place, but that what I really mean when I'm describing a space or a vibe or a work of art that feels quote unquote authentic to me. What I'm partly really saying is this feels like it's been made by someone who has decided to suspend the idea of its criticism while it's being made. Like that someone has decided to make a thing and not engage with what other people are going to say about it. And those are the people in your head. And we all know that when we make stuff, We have people in our head and we have different mechanisms like of Mm -hmm. banishing them from our head, letting them into our head. But like I know that the word authentic does carry that kind of charge for me sometimes. And so it's it's interesting, though, how we are aligning authenticity around ideas of black identity and appropriation as a kind of way of taking away from an authentic black identity like this is seems to be the poles of the conversation and it's curious to me that we could start talking about like Adam Pendleton and the Alexander McQueen you know the skirt worn by Anna Wintour and all of that And you started in the beginning, I thought you were going to say, well, there's appropriation when somebody when one group of people like literally steals the culture of another group of people. That's a kind Mm -hmm. of cultural appropriation. And that does seem very problematic. Um, And then there's this appropriation as a kind of as a as a method, as a a multi-century long method of producing culture. Right. And I guess I'm trying to figure out is there a way to square all of these things or is part of the problem of our moment is that everything gets reduced to an accusation rather than, you know, the a, a more complex conversation in which we might all have to admit that we all exist between some pole of the authentic and the appropriated constantly in almost everything we do, that it's a spectrum.
1: Well, you know, to, you know, circle back to your mentor. Excuse me, dear. Rosalind Krauss, what's at stake? When you look at an artwork, this is the way, I don't use the word authentic. I don't. I look at the work and I think, what is at stake in this moment to make this work right now? And it has never failed me, Helen. The work that moves me in the contemporary moment Like I saw the David uh, at uh, the Betty Woodman show, who, you know, I love. I adore Betty so much. Um, There is something at stake in that work. And, you know, and that is the difference. Sometimes I look at people's work and I hear that they're really great artists or they're whatever. And there's nothing at stake in what they're doing. There's nothing at stake. And you can see it. Like, what does it mean to make a what does it mean to make a portrait in 2022? What's at stake in doing that? You have film, you have video, you have photography, which are better ways of capturing the human likeness, right? What's at stake in making a painting of a person in 2022? And when you when when you see someone who has gone into that, stepped into that arena as a portrait painter in 2022, and said, "I'm gonna, I'm taking this on," that's where you see it, where people are risking being laughed at. People are risking right. uh, being dismissed as um, not contemporary, but taking it on. Yeah, you know, that's the difference. It has nothing to do with authenticity. It has to do with like a real investment as an artist.
0: So maybe in a way, maybe I mean I don't mean to speak for Adam Pendleton, but maybe what was the, maybe the problem there was not so much appropriation, which I actually don't think happened. Um, but maybe that Adam felt. That there wasn't enough at stake in the dress.
1: That's really what the problem is, Helen. Right? That
0: Anna Wintour like, was wearing something, then she, there was a big fuss about it. And what was at stake in MoMA for Pendleton was the stakes there were very, very high.
1: And he hit the mark. And hit right. that mark fucking hard. And the problem with the dress, and I love Alexander McQueen, it wasn't a very good design. And if it's not a very good design and someone calls you up and says, hey, did you design a dress with Alexander McQueen? And then you see the dress and you're thinking about your work. You're like, oh, girl, no, 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 That's what the issue is. Yeah.
0: I had a friend in graduate school who had the greatest quote I've used it for my whole life. Good design makes you happy and bad design goes everywhere.
1: It's so true. It's, it's so, so true. true. We could so do a whole conversation really... about bad design, girl. We could do a whole hour and a half on that.
0: All right, next time. <laughs> Steve Locke, <laughs> I love, you always get my brain juices flowing, honey.
1: I love you, my dear. Talk to you soon. Dialogues is produced by David's Warner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswirner.com dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.